for all of your TNA needs, head to tensandaces.com. Are you ready for some TNA? My friends and I aren't your average blackjack players. We're all APs, which, if you don't know, stands for advantage player. As in, we play with a mathematical edge or advantage over the house. Yep, card counters. That would be us. On this podcast, I'm going to bring you true life stories about the AP life. There'll be stories of all the times we fucked up. Stories when we made out like bandits. Stories of losing more in one session than a lot of people make in a year. Stories of getting backed off in one shoe. Stories of average shows out here doing this card counting thing with some of us crushing it and some of us just making our way through it. So if this is the kind of shit you want to hear, well, listen up, because we're about to give you some TNA. Welcome to the Tens and Aces podcast. My name is Mike. I'm your host of this little shindig. Today's episode of this transition of our attempt at imaginary radio will be a mailbag episode where we answer questions from you listeners. I will be joined by guest host and former guest on the podcast, Nichols, and we will attempt to answer questions to the best of our ability. So if this is the kind of stuff you want to hear, listen up, because we're about to give you some TNA. Welcome to the show again, Nichols. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, today we're going to do a mailbag segment, a question and answer. Um, I think you would be one of the perfect guys to have on for that. So let's dig right in. Our first question is from a listener named David, and he asks, or he says, he has all the aspects of his game down. He's built a starting bankroll of 1,500 into 2,900 in 53 hours. His question is, should he keep building his bankroll slowly as he is, or work overtime at his job for six months and not play, and save up until he's at 25,000, so he has the bankroll necessary to play some of the better games in his area? All right, so I guess that if it was me personally, I would probably probably just save some money, work overtime if I had to, in order to get my bankroll to where I want it to be. That's not necessarily the only route, though. You could also say you're going to save up X amount each month and play with a replenishable bankroll. Right. Can you explain that, the ins and outs of that, and why that's beneficial for people who maybe don't know? Yeah. So basically, it allows you to play to a bigger bankroll than what you currently have on hand with the knowledge that you're going to have money to play with in the future that can be considered part of the bankroll. Right. And so that so that allows you to bet a little bigger than maybe you otherwise would be able to. With an amount like, what did he say? He's at 2,900 right now? Yes. He built 1,529 in 53 okay. hours. So it sounds like 
um, this listener is running good. Yep. I mean, that's most likely above expectation. I don't know exactly what kind of game he's playing. Mm-hmm. So good for him. But that that's not really what you should expect every 53 hours um, playing at those stakes. Like doubling your money, at almost, almost doubling his money in 53 Right, hours. right. I mean, I don't know exactly what game he's playing or what his spread is, but my guess would be that he's probably playing a game that's worth close to around $10 an hour, if even that. That's what I was guessing, too. He didn't say, but he did say that he wanted to play. His question is so he can play better games in his area, which, right. leads, me, which leads me to think that, that he's probably like about where you're estimating. With 2900 on hand, that's that makes it kind of tough. I'm, I'm assuming that he's talking about playing some of the quarter games. Uh, mm-hmm. may, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's like playing $5 games now and wants to be able to play a $10 game. But with a quarter game, it's going to be difficult to do that with 2900 on hand because on a quarter game $2,900 can go in a flash you know it's mm-hmm. not like it's not like one of those things where like 2900 on a $10 game where maybe you're betting a little bit bigger than you should that could still last you several hours but on a quarter game you know it might last you several hours but if you're talking about a top bet of like 150 200 dollars that that could be gone in less than an hour you know oh, it yeah. could and the last thing you want to do is run out of money and not be able to double down, not be able to split, or not be able to finish out um, a really positive shoe. So, or you get a four-way split, right? A few doubles at your max bet, and you're you're afraid to throw the money out there, or right? You can't, because, or you can't afford it, right? One one hand at say um, mm-hmm. two hundred. Like, say you're playing one spot of two hundred dollars, and you split that to four hands. Now that's eight hundred dollars out there. Say you double twice. Now it's twelve hundred. That I mean, you're getting close to half of the cash you have on hand. So, right. I think in this particular instance, maybe um, go ahead and save up to a bigger bankroll. But at the same time, that doesn't mean you can't play some of the lower value games to help speed things up, right? Like if you can generate some EV. I think he was saying from what I, I kind of edited his his thing down to make it more concise, but I think he was alluding to the fact that he couldn't have, wouldn't have much time to play if he did, if he worked a lot of overtime. Okay. I I forget about time constraints because I've not worked a square job in a while. But, um, yeah, so I, I guess in that instance, I would save up and maybe work overtime a little more often if you can. If but twenty five thousand doesn't necessarily have to be your target, you could probably work it up to ten thousand and then say, okay, I'm gonna still save a little bit from say my normal pay to put to add to the bankroll, and I'm gonna use this ten thousand and call it replenishable. You could probably do that too. Yeah, another point that I was thinking about the replenishable is if he in six months from his job can save up twenty. 5,000. He probably, if he works like not as much overtime, that if he could save up that amount of money, he probably can work some kind of a decent, respectable replenishing bankroll on top of his 2,900. If he has the extra income stream from working overtime, you know. Right. But then again, time constraints. That's the thing about these these written, written questions. There are specific questions come up that we don't really know what the situation is, so we got to speculate versus if he was here, we'd ask him, hey, so. Right. Absolutely. It's, it's tough not having full information. Okay, so the next question is from a listener named Jamal. He's having trouble figuring out when a good time to rat hole his chips is. He says he wants to preserve his locals as long as possible. He asks, do you have any rat holing tips? So I'm, I haven't done a ton of rat holing myself. I, I know a lot of people work that into their game. One way to do it would be if you can, if you know what your EV is, like your hourly earn rate, mm-hmm. if you rat hole exactly your EV, 
then over time that casino is going to see you as a loser, right? So if you're if you're trying to mask your win loss from the casino, I think a simple and fairly easy way to do that would be to just rat hole your EV every hour. Yeah, because that's, the, that's a good point because that puts you on their theoretical as long as your EV is calculated correctly, right? Yeah, like you wouldn't need to like you don't need to rat hole five hundred dollars every hour if your EV is say a hundred and twenty dollars. If you just rat hole a hundred and twenty dollars or one twenty five because it would be easier with chip denominations, mm-hmm. then they're almost certainly over a long period of time, right? This is assuming they let you play long enough for the variance to kind of work out. You will most likely be doing enough to cover your tracks in the long run. Right. For people that don't know, a key thing to worry about with rat holing is you don't want to be greedy with it because, you know, the floors, they count down the racks. And if they notice chips are missing, it went they went somewhere and they just want their racks square. So if they think that you took four greens or five greens and there's 12 greens missing, they're going to they may just assign them all to you. <laughs> so, right. Absolutely. You got to be careful. And that, yeah. may, that may, you may do the exact opposite of what you're trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. And an- another thing to consider when you're rat holing and this is, it, you know, you would think it would go without saying, but it's um, something that I've seen people do before. If you are playing heads up, that is not the time to rat hole because you are the only person the chips can be attributed to. <laughs> wow. And that, and that is probably the biggest reason I haven't rat holed a lot is because I've spent a lot of time specifically seeking out heads up um, sure. games. Absolutely. That makes total sense. The best time to rat hole is, of course, when there's a drunk ploppy at the table that his wife or her husband's coming up and they're giving him like, you know, chips off the table to go play in a slot machine or play in another table or whatever. Sure. Uh, or they're, they're sticking chips in their pocket. Then it's game time for you. That's a good opportunity because like I said just a minute ago, they're going to assign all the chips to that guy like they would because they think, oh, that must he must have took the 12 chips or whatever it is. So, right. The important thing is that you're getting those chips assigned to other players. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I think rat holes, which you kind of alluded to, is something that uh, players worry too much about. It, it's good to do and it makes sense when you have the opportunity to do it, but it shouldn't be your your focus, especially when you're new. you got enough to worry about. Yeah, absolutely. You've got to worry about keeping a count. You've got to worry about betting correctly, converting to the true count, um, you know, knowing when there's a deviation on a hand. like, And that's and especially when you're brand new, that's so much that, you know, rat holing something you can figure out later down the road. And it's one of those things just like with casino comportment that I think kind of just comes from experience. Like there's a lot of sort of idiosyncratic things that happen in the casino, right? We don't like, mm-hmm. we just have new experiences every time and learning sort of some weird ones that aren't very common where, hey, this is a good opportunity to hide a little bit of my win or this looks like a good opportunity, but it's not kind of just comes from experience experience and knowing the situation you're in because it's almost never going to be 100% the same every session you have or every time you encounter something similar it's not always the exact same situation right yeah because the people involved all the variables are different you have different people yeah they're doing the same jobs you know you have a dealer you have floor people you have supervisors you have surveillance security whatever but they're all different people so it's just going to be little nuances and it takes time to be able to experience to to learn all those nuances right all right so i see if i can pronounce this name correctly 
Leonidas21 from the BGA Forum asks, he has several questions here, actually. Uh, made my job of setting up this list of questions really easy. Thanks, dude. He says, question one is, how do you effectively build an AP network to learn more advanced plays? That is a really good question, and it's not a very easy one to answer concisely, but I will give it a go anyways. So the most important thing in my mind is making like before anything else, you have to make sure that you don't do things that damage your reputation. So, you know, don't misrepresent who you are and your level of expertise because that'll get found out really quick. Mm-hmm. And if somebody does share information with you, be very responsible with it. I, like there's some things that, you know, like the general game conditions of a blackjack game, like what the rule set is, how many tables they have, you know, that's 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 fine to share kind of freely. I mean, that's why we have CBJN and Casino 411. But there's, but anything that's more detailed than that, like when you're talking about things like the casino's internal procedure and internal, the way they operate internally, knowing what their threshold is for, say, a back off or, or knowing that there's an opportunity against this specific dealer or, mm-hmm. or whatever else it might be, that, that's stuff that you need to keep close to your chest and not spread that so freely because if and if people learn that by sharing their somewhat secret activities with you is going to result in that play getting blown up and shared with several other people they are probably not going to want to share with you again and other people in that person's network will learn not to share that information with you again yeah a perfect example would be not necessarily blackjack related but like slot vultures if somebody yeah. blows up somebody's because you get there's only one one or two or three or whatever machines at each location that have this play on them and if somebody blows it up and say a forum i mean that guy's never going to get information from anybody ever again right. right absolutely and that and so so first and foremost i think is not damaging your reputation and those are just a few examples of how you might do that um another thing and so after that after you understand that hey people have to be able to trust me and these are things that might cause people to distrust me the next Next thing I would say is, you know, be active in online communities. Mm-hmm. So whether that's the Blackjack Apprenticeship Forums or Blackjack the Discord or some other forum, people are going to be way more likely and way more willing to talk to you and help you out with something if you're not a complete stranger. So like, so when you go on to say Blackjack Apprenticeship and you're brand new and nobody knows who you are and you start sending messages to people saying, hey, can you tell me what opportunities? I can find in this area, well, you're probably not going to get a response because they have no idea who the hell you are. Right. There was and actually it, a post recently on the forum that I think you said exactly that in response to. Right. And I actually, I, I put a pretty lengthy post up recently specifically about networking on the mm-hmm. Blackjack Apprenticeship forums. So if you are on Blackjack Apprenticeship, you can go look at that. Uh, it's probably not perfect um, because, you know, I'm kind of a dummy sometimes and sometimes I get things wrong, but, but that, and then there's a few other responses that expand on how to build a network and why it's important. So if you just go to 
so if you're on Blackjack Apprenticeship and you just search Nichols in the search bar, you should be able to find that. Or if you just find any of my posts, you can click on my profile picture and then go to the forums tab and that should be the first thing that shows up there. Yeah, I read that post. Uh, you're not a dummy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say in general, just be a, you know, if you're if you're polite and you're and you're not expecting the world of everybody that you ask about information, that goes a long way too. Yes. Like, like one of the things that I, it gets on my nerves and I think it gets on a lot of other people's nerves is when someone asks you about a play. So you mentioned slot vulturing. So let's just go with that as an example. So someone might ask me say about a specific slot machine. I might confirm or deny for them that that's a playable game. But but some people will get offended if you don't give them every last detail that you know about it. That's just something you're not going to get a lot unless you are in that person's inner circle. Absolutely. And I think people need to, a, a newer AP trying to glean this information needs to realize that in most cases, this isn't just somebody's hobby. This is their job. This is how they feed their family, you know, pay the right. rent. So it, it's a little it's not just some hobby where, you know, you're building like, I don't know, model railroad or something like that. And some guys not giving you the information about how this tip to do that or whatever. I don't know. I don't know think about that. I just thought of that as a, as a hobby. It, it's a different thing. It's their income. And also another thing I would add is if you're going to be asking people questions, even though you're new, have something to offer. Even if it's sure. something as simple, hey, I was at XYZ place over the last weekend and I noticed this. You know, sure. Even if they already know it, they'll appreciate you offering it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's a huge thing is also being willing to share with people instead of just, uh, you know, kind of like at Christmas, right? You know, sometimes it's better to give than to receive. Yes. They say. So uh, that, that's a big thing. And then also, like, if you're a little further along, right? Like maybe you're maybe you're still kind of new, but you're further along than some other people. Don't don't be afraid to help some people out when they have questions, because sure. at, at some point that that um, green newbie that you were helping out might just uh, end up being a pretty experienced and intelligent advantage player themselves themselves and they might be able to help you out in the future. Absolutely. Like, like a lot of, like, there's people in my network that helped me out when I was a newbie. And there's also people in my network that I helped out when they were a newbie. It can work in both directions. Like, sure. And, now they, they remember when you they were a newbie and you helped them out and now they they have valuable information to share. And they're like, oh, that guy had my back. I'm going to help him out. Totally. Absolutely. Get it. Yeah. Uh, it's totally re- reciprocal for sure. I think that's a huge key is just don't take, 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 give, give. Right. Just like just like with anything in life, um, you know, social social interactions of any nature should almost always be reciprocal. Like if you've studied psychology at all, you've you would have heard about something called the prisoner's dilemma. Mm-hmm. And maybe even if you haven't studied psychology, you've read about this. So the prisoner's dilemma is where it's basically playing friend or foe, right? Mm-hmm. You can either like if both players cooperate, they each get five coins. If one cooperates and the other doesn't, the one who doesn't gets 10 coins. And if neither of them cooperate, they get zero. What generally happens is if you have two people play this game is if one person never cooperates to start out and the other person picks up on that pattern and he doesn't cooperate either and, not, and neither of them earn anything. But if the person on the other end always cooperates, then and so when you think about that, you think, oh, well, if they always cooperate, you would think that y- you could earn more by not cooperating. And mm-hmm. while that's true, you have to remember that would cause them to not cooperate. The best play is to always cooperate as long as the other person's cooperating. And then you both earn the 
most that way because even though you're earning less per play you earn on a higher percentage of your plays yes less is better than zero um and i i think where it gets twisted in the ap world is i think people in general try to do that in life i mean there's exceptions but they try right. to be but in, we approach this ap thing with we're going to go into a casino and we're going to outsmart them and we're going to take as much as we can from them so i think there's that's the starting point of what we're doing so i think it's it's kind of human nature to kind of fall into that take 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 thing but you got to understand that the APs you're working with are your partners, not your not your competition, you know. Right. So they're your loosely defined teammates. You know? Right. Right. The people that you network with are they're friends to you. They're not your competition. There are some people that are competition and those people are treated differently. But and in fact, it's not a bad idea to befriend some of your competition, so to speak, and help develop a network that way. But that that's more once you learn some things outside of card counting. Yes. Um, I, I think the question was, uh, I think I'm getting ahead of myself because the question was about how do I build a network to learn those other plays first. But Right. But I think it's it's valid. I understand what you're saying because a lot of the more advanced plays are fewer and far in between. So you'll see. Right. Uh, and and yeah. there's a lot of them where if someone else plays it, you cannot. Like mm-hmm. the opportunity is just gone after that other person plays it. You know, and it, it may even be something where the opportunity, you know, it recurs every so often. But if someone's like come through and cleaned everything out, there's not going to be anything left over. And mm-hmm. and so sometimes when you're in that situation, even if you have a network with the people that would otherwise be your competition, you can work out sort of a deal like, okay, um, when you're in town, I will take this place and leave this place for you, et cetera, et cetera. So you worked like to your prisoner's dilemma thing you were right. just saying, you both, instead of both hogging both spots, say if there's, say there's two spots in this this uh, scenario, one of, you, one of you says, okay, I'll give you this spot, but you gave me this spot, so we stay out of each other's way. That way you both right. make $5 instead of one making 10. Right. You know, and, or, if, or, and if one place is more valuable than the other, then maybe you work things out differently where maybe you swap out. Um, C- Colin actually put something recently in a thread about this with some, I think it was some sort of promotion on a blackjack game where there were some other advantage players there when they were there and they said, okay, how about we play for these eight hours and then we'll give up our seats to you for the next eight hours and then, and then next time we'll swap shifts so you guys take the day and we'll take the swing or something like that yeah so help each other out so you both don't screw each other right and then of course if someone's not cooperating with you then there's nothing saying you don't that you have to cooperate with them in that situation though just take what you can get yeah Mm -hmm. man I i think that came up in a thread where the topic of discussion was with card counting if two card counters end up on the same table who stays and who leaves yeah i think i read that yeah yeah it it was somewhere in that discussion my general opinion on that is if you sit down at the table and a couple hands in you notice the other guy's an ap if he was there first you leave that's his spot yeah most generally i would tend to agree with that there's a few exceptions to it but in general i think that's the way to handle it uh my friend the snowman was playing at one of his locals this group of like four guys were bouncing from table to table to table to table poaching all his basically they they recognized that he was a counter they could tell so they were poaching his count they weren't even standing by back counting they just wait for his bet to raise and then they jump in on the table with a high bet and this was pissing him off of course 
you know, he's doing all the work and they're just coming here poaching, taking his good cards, whatever. So what he did is he put like a max bet out there. And then right before the dealer went to shuffle, he pulled his bet back. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like, he said it was like, I forget, it was negative. The guy got the point and he stopped. Yeah. And, you know, I've had that situation come up myself. Uh, So this guy, like he identified that I was counting and he like followed me around a little bit and was watching me play, I think probably to like make sure. Mm -hmm. And then the next night he had his, I see him with his wife and then he sends his wife to go sit at the table I'm sitting at. And every time I raised my bet, she would jump her bet. Oh, what an asshole. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe she was counting too, but I'm just assuming that she wasn't counting. He said, oh, I'm going to go over here. Honey, you go play with this guy. When he raises his bet, raise your bet and then I'll make money over here. You'll make money over there. You know? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. That. I don't know. Maybe she, I shouldn't assume. Maybe she was counting too or whatever. I don't know. But, I, I, I don't think so, but. Yeah. Anyway, next question. What drills would you recommend a new AP use to learn basic strategy faster as well as the running count. Would you recommend Richard Blaine's book, Blackjack Blueprint, for someone needing a more structured approach? First off, I guess I'm a fraud because I've never read Blackjack Blueprint. I've heard it get recommended several times, but I've never read it. So Me either. <laughs> but a, a lot of people recommend it, so maybe it's a good tool. I'm sure it is. I believe it's one of the books that uh, Richard Munchkin usually recommends when uh, someone asks a similar question to him about books to read. Okay, yeah. I'll, I'll appeal to expertise on that one and say, yes, I'd recommend it then. Okay. I'll appeal so, Richard's expertise. Yeah, definitely. I'll hail Richard. Uh, <laughs> so what drills would you recommend to learn basic strategy faster in, in the running count? Besides, that's kind of a really basic question. The way I did it with basic strategy was like writing, like physically with paper and pen, writing out the basic strategy play um, for each situation, like writing out the chart, because it involves several different parts of your brain to do that, right? So it it's a little bit of learning by doing. It's a little bit of learning by seeing mm-hmm. and it deals with your memory and, and, you know, and you won't get it right the first couple of times, but having written it down, you will remember something new each time you do it. Um, on top of that, I did a lot of just dealing hands to myself. And once I was proficient with basic strategy and I absolutely knew it, I would try to see how fast I could play basic strategy and just deal out the cards to myself and then right. putting the running count with that. I know some people do the card flipping where they, you know, flip over all the cards in the deck as fast as they can and try to count it down. And that's one way to do it. I'm a big believer though in practicing in the same method you'll be playing. Yes. So so I would just deal the hands out while playing basic strategy once I knew basic strategy well enough. Like that's you have to do that first before you move on to counting in my opinion. But uh, and yeah, everybody's opinion. <laughs> I mean, because if you don't know basic strategy, you don't, why there's no point of. Right. Well, I, I think there's some people that might say you could learn them out of order as long as you're not playing yet. But I, I think oh, okay. It's, okay. But I think it's way more efficient to learn basic strategy first. That's like building a uh, a wall for a house before you build a foundation, in my opinion. So, yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Um, it's it's just going to be way more efficient to do basic strategy first. But so once you're at that point, I think dealing out the hands and trying to keep the count and, you know, have a have a burn card off to the side so you can check if your count was correct at the end. And, you know, start with a single deck. I'm, like most likely you're not going to play a lot of single deck in your career. Um, some of us have. And but that's not that's but there's not a lot of it. But mm-hmm. even still start with a single deck just because you want to keep it manageable at first. You're just If you're just doing drills and then as you get more proficient, then 
then start adding decks for your practice. Right, exactly. And I, I think it also, does it really matter if you can count down a deck in 35 seconds or 25 seconds? <laughs> I mean, it, it it matters, but is it really that important? I mean, because if you're focused on how how many seconds you can count through a deck of cards, yeah, uh, I, it's more of I an think, ego thing, I think. I, I think up to a point, it's not so important. Like there's a certain threshold where you need to be faster. Like if you're unable to count the dealer's hit cards before she scoops them, then you're probably too slow. But like past a certain point, you're absolutely right. Like the difference between being able to count down a deck in 30 seconds and 28 seconds is not important at all. Mm-hmm. What's uh, what's your method of when you when do you count the cards? Do you count them when you see them or when the dealer? Are, are Granted, we talking about a shoe game or a pitch game? I was just going to say that. Let's say a shoe game because that's what most people probably start with. A shoe game. And I think this is how most people do it. I wait until the second card hits each hand. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, because then, you know, if you have a 10 and a five, you can just cancel it and move on. And it's easier to just count by twos. So exactly. You, so you're either going to have, you know, if it's two smalls, it's going to be two. If it's a neutral and a small, it's plus one, et cetera, et cetera. And then, and then after the initial two cards and the dealer up card, I'll just count them as I see them. Right. That's what I do too. When I was starting out, I didn't really have a strategy. I just kind of, as they came out, I just went for it. And then sometimes you'd forget which ones you counted, which ones you didn't count. And then I did pretty much fell into what you just described there. But I think for new people, they sometimes fall into having too much information. And if you keep it, like you said, to two cards at a time where you can often cancel each other, it makes it really quick and easy. Right. What would you be your strategy for uh, a pitch game where the cards are dealt face down? So the way I do it is different from what Blackjack Apprenticeship teaches. Uh, the way uh, the way most people learn and the mo- way most people teach is to count your own cards and the dealer's up card and to not count other players' cards until they're permanently exposed. And I think that works fine. But um, playing pitch games for me, and may- maybe it's just because I've played a lot of pitch games, that's been the majority of my play, mm-hmm. I'm fairly comfortable with counting cards as I see them. So if another player, if I see another player's cards, I'll just count them. Which helps for your deviation plays, obviously. Right. Especially if we're talking about a deeply dealt game. Yep. Uh, whether it's double, and also on single deck, it means a little bit more. And so on a pitch game, and this is also, uh, and you know, where you sit doesn't matter in terms of the actual odds of the game, but I have always liked sitting in the center seat because then I'm sort of behind the other players, um, like physically behind them, mm-hmm. even if it's only a few inches, so I can see the cards better. And and generally, I would look for a heads-up game anyways, but in those situations where I do have another player, I like being able to see their cards, even if it's just for something like taking insurance. Right, exactly. Or even money, whatever. Yeah, for sure. Or, you know, there's some plays that are like right on the border of an index and knowing that just a little bit of extra information. And, I mean, how much another, easy is that really? But still, right. every little bit counts. And another thing you can do in those situations, if you um, don't know what the other player has, but you're there having to make a decision and it's and it's really close, like maybe it's insurance, maybe it's 12 versus 3, whatever, is something called counting by inference. And this, and you know, you don't use that for your actual running count. So in order to do this, you have to you have to remember what your running count was before you did this. Say it's insurance. If somebody mm-hmm. tucks their cards mm. against an ace, they're probably not holding small cards. They probably eight, 17 or better, hard 17 or better, yeah. Right, most likely. They, they might have 16 or something, but but if they do, they'll, they'd probably sit there and think about it for a second. If they just quickly tuck those cards, you can probably call that minus one for the purpose of the insurance decision. Right. But once, but once that insurance decision has been made, you need to be able to 
go back to your running count. Yeah, yeah. If it's, if it's really quick and they look like, all right, I'm going to win this hand, you know, it's, yeah. it, it could be a 20. It might not be, which is why I usually just call it minus one. If I'm doing inference for that, uh, there, and then if they're holding both of their cards and you can't see them, then I generally don't make an inference because it could be a stiff hand or it could be two small cards or whatever. But at the very least, when someone tucks, you know that there's probably one less 10 for that insurance decision. Yeah, that's why also I, when I play some, there's a few pitch games around here that they settle their side bets before. So if they have, say, it's a lucky ladies table. And for example, right. if they have 20, they'll show the dealer they have 20 and they'll pay their their all the side bets out before they play the round of blackjack. That's great. Right. That's even better. Right. So I don't, some places they don't do that until after for the obvious reason. They don't, you know, they don't pay the bets till after the round's over because obviously you got to show cards if you're doing some side bet. So that's going to be the end of part one of this episode of the mailbag segment with Nichols. And we'll have him on in the next week or two for part two. So I hope you maybe learned something or found the show entertaining. I know I sure did. I'll see you down the felt. a few messages from our sponsors. Find your paradise. Go to visitlasvegas.com By the fact that you're listening to a podcast about blackjack and advantage play. It's clear that you're interested in this topic and most likely interested in becoming the best blackjack player you can become. Now, I suppose there are exceptions to this. Like, for example, maybe you're an uninterested significant other trapped in the car listening to this. Or maybe you're a kid trapped in the car forced to listen to this because your phone is dead and you can't tune out the world with your headphones in like you normally would. And by the way, kids, I apologize for all the F-bombs that I've dropped on this show. Please don't follow my example. Or maybe, just maybe, you don't like money and you want to continue to play blackjack and not make your game better. If you happen to fall in any of those categories, by all means, tune out and don't listen to a word that I have to say right here. But if you want to learn how to be the best blackjack player you can be, learn and grow your game, I suggest you check out blackjackapprenticeship.com. They offer what is, in my opinion, not only a world-class education on the game of blackjack, but the absolute best education you can find anywhere for this game. They offer online training drills, a supportive community, as well as other exclusive tools that are critical to your success. Even if you already know the ins and outs of this game and don't really need the training they offer per se. That's great. I'm kind of in that boat myself and I imagine there are several others of you that are as well. So even for people like us, just the opportunities and networking alone that this site offers is worth the price of admission and then some. I also can't stress enough that it is a wonderful and supportive community 
community of other APs, there's almost no trolling in the forums there. So once again, I urge you to check out blackjackapprenticeship.com if you're serious about growing your game. Joking as he takes my last token. I see no. Queen. 